2: Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness Podcast. So death, dying. It's not a topic we like to talk about in modern day life, particularly in America where everything is awesome and everyone will be eternally forever young. But as a result of our hesitation about talking about death and sort of coordinating off to the hospitals or the nursing homes. There's a lot of misconceptions about death and the dying process uh, and a lot of myths and consequently a lot of fear about it. You know, from my own experience, I can count on one hand the number of people close to me who have died and I never, never actually saw them go through the dying process. I saw them at the funeral when they've, they're gussied up in the casket. But this is all gonna affect us at one point in our lives. Either we're gonna die because we get a terminal uh, Diagnosis, cancer, or something like that, is untreatable. Or we have a parent who is going to be dying of an old age, or we're going to die one day, eventually, sometime. So it's be good to know what exactly is going to happen to us physically, emotionally, mentally as we get closer and closer to death. Well, my guest today has spent her life trying to educate people about the dying process, the dying experience. Her name is Barbara Carnes. She's a hospice nurse as well as a writer and speaker. And she goes around the world, around the country in America, talking and sharing with people what the dying experience is like to prepare them for this experience and how they can make the process more meaningful and less scary. So today on the podcast, we're going to discuss dying, what's it like, the physicality of it, the psychology of it, the the emotional aspect of it, the social aspect of it, and what we can do to prepare to die today. Uh, I know it sounds kind of like a downer podcast, but I think you'll be surprisingly be uplifted at the end of it because you'll have some knowledge that you can actually use for an experience that we are all going to encounter at some point in our life, whether you're rich, poor, uh, doesn't matter. Death affects us all. So without further ado, Barbara Carnes and the Dying Experience. Barbara Carnes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, So can you tell us a little about your history? How did you become a hospice
0: nurse? Well, um, I graduated from nursing school in 62 and thought, wow, I've made a huge mistake. I should have been a social worker. But in the 70s, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came forward, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, with how poorly we Americans were treating people who were dying in the hospitals. And at the same time, in England, Dame Cicely Saunders was creating a – a plan of care for people who were dying and she called it hospice well the idea was that she would hospice would throw out all the rules that the medical establishment was using to take care of people who were dying and that they would treat them differently. You know, um, they could have the the dog on the bed, and and it wasn't about the medicines. It was about quality of life. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And so I got back involved in nursing, and uh, became a hospice nurse. And I was a bedside hospice nurse for oh. Five, six years, and then got into administration and eventually uh, was the director of two different hospices in Kansas City. I liked the holistic approach to. Um, to care that we 're more than a physical body we 're emotional, mental, and spiritual beings, and um, the hospice approach dealt with all aspects of the person as well as working with the family, where our medical model is really just focused on the physical uh, physical body and on the person that 's sick.
2: So we'll talk a little more in detail about what exactly hospice care is and what's involved with it. Um, Before we get there, you talk about how there was a need for hospice care because in America, at least, and probably in other Western countries as well, uh, we started treating death as a physical disease almost. And then we've become really uncomfortable with it. We, We isolate it. We send people who are dying to the hospital and we just kind of forget it. Why are modern Americans so uncomfortable with death? And was there a time in our history when death was more integrated into our daily lives?
0: Very definitely there was a time because grandma used to live at home. You know, we were multi-generational, all in one home. And when grandma got sick, she didn't go to the hospital. She went to the upstairs bedroom. And there she died and when she died we didn't call a funeral home we washed her body and we put her in the parlor and family and friends and neighbors came to our home and paid their respects well today um, Grandma lives in a senior citizen high-rise, and when she gets sick, she goes to the hospital, and from the hospital, she goes to a nursing facility, and there she dies, and because we're not multi-generational all in one home, we're scattered all over the world family comes in the last week or so before grandma dies and then we see her in the coffin and in a funeral home and we have have made dying as you said a medical event when in reality it's it's not medical dying is social it's a communal event but we've, we've taken it out of the home. We've taken it out of the normal naturalness of it. And we've made it um, something to be frightened of. We've made it a pathology where, in reality, life is a terminal illness. You know, we're all dying from the moment we're born. Um, but we Americans have, have become very afraid because... All we have is television and the movies that show us what death is like. We're not experiencing it firsthand with those that we care about. I
2: mean, we'll talk about some of those myths about death uh, and dying in a bit. But like, what do we lose in the process? I mean, what have we lost in the process of isolating our, our loved ones who are dying? You know, into a hospital somewhere. I mean, I'm sure the, the individual who is dying loses something, and I'm sure those who survive are also lose something as well. What is that exactly?
0: Well, we, we're losing the normalness of it, um, w- and we place that n- normality with fear, um, with the unknown. And, of course, we're always afraid of that which we don't know or haven't experienced before. For the person that's dying... There is a, from a disease or old age, there's a a process, but most of us don't understand that there's a process to dying from disease or old age. Most of us think a person's alive one minute and dead the next, and so we start trying to take care of people who can't be fixed as if they can be fixed, and um then you add your fear of, I don't want to talk about this because I don't know what to say or I don't know what to do. And we have an isolation that goes um, around the person that has the illness and is approaching death, as well as an isolation uh, with the family. Because not only do people not know what to say to the family, um, you know, they, they are all by themselves. They don't we don't talk about dying. We don't talk about death. It's almost like if I talk about it, then I probably will die. So I better not bring it up.
2: Right. Um, so let's talk about because One of the things I, I, I found so enlightening about your book is you get into details, like the nitty-gritty details of what dying is actually like. Because you know, I've I've probably seen. I mean, I'm, I'm like off the top. Of my like I can count on my number of fingers the number, uh, on my single hand, how many dead people I've seen, right? And they, they'd actually died. Um, and I've had grandparents that died. That happened when I was a little kid. So I, I have never actually seen someone go through the dying process. And so reading your book, talking about what goes on was really helpful. I mean, it took some of the mystery away from it. Uh, so before we actually talk about what death is actually like, or dying is actually like, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or myths that people have about the process of dying?
0: Well, number one, I think that, um, look at, look at your movies, how someone is saying something very profound, they're, um, giving this message and then, you know, they close their eyes and their mouth and they're dead and people in the hours to minutes before death, they're not saying something profound. They're generally non-responsive, um, and if they are talking, they're probably not making any sense because they're otherworldly. So one of the misconceptions is that we literally think we're alert and alive and talking, and then one minute later, we're dead. And that that's not how it works, even um, with what i call fast death is where you're in an accident or you have a heart attack even then you're you're not saying something profound and then we also expect people to have their eyes wide open and people don't have their eyes wide open when they die. They have their eyelids open kind of at half mast, but not wide, wide open in a blank stare. Um, and then in the movies, you, you see someone take their, their finger and their thump, um, thumb and they close the person's eyelids. Well... If you do that, their eyelids don't stay shut. They open right back up, but people don't know that.
2: I'm sure it freaks them out when they come Which back does. open. Yeah.
0: It's like, you know, I have to scrape everyone off the ceiling when that happens because that the movies it doesn't happen like that are on television. And that's our only role models anymore because we're not at the bedside when someone who's dying. Uh and when we are there, we're there because we're emotionally involved. And when you're emotionally involved, you don't see what's really happening because if everything that you perceive comes through your culture, your role models, your stereotypes, your fear, your belief system, your experiences, and all of that distorts what's really happening.
2: Okay. So you've hit on some of the things, what dying is really like, uh, you're not keeping your eyes open. There's usually not profound words spoken at the very end. But let's talk about what dying really is like. Because I'm sure most people who are listening, uh, unless they're doctors or they work in hospice as well, they've probably never seen someone die or go through the process of dying. So what are the signs that someone is beginning what you call, I think it was interesting, you call dying sort of liken it to a, a birth labor. Um, what are the signs that someone is getting close to dying and why do you liken death to Pregnancy labor.
0: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna back up a little bit sure for labor. Okay, and say that there are just two ways to die, and we in the medical profession make it really complicated. And it's so easy. You either die fast, which is the getting hit by a truck or a heart attack or suicide, or you die gradually. And gradual death is either through a disease or old age. And gradual death has a process. It doesn't just happen. If it just happened, it would be fast death. So that process of a gradual death or dying gradually begins two to three to four months before death actually occurs. And three things start happening. One is is a person's eating habits change. Food is what holds us on this planet. Food is our anchor, To this world. And if the body's preparing to die, it doesn't want the grounding or the energy or the hold that food gives us. And so the person all by themselves will cut back and stop eating over this period of months. And that's the hardest thing for people to understand. Um, And it's not that the person doesn't want to eat, it's literally they can't eat. They want to because they see what it does to us, but their body is rejecting the food. So gradually they stop eating. They gradually start sleeping more. And over a period of months, they will sleep more and more and more until they're asleep more than they're awake. And then the third thing is they start withdrawing from the world around them. They're not interested in their favorite football team. They're not interested in socializing, and eventually, on this continuum of months right up to death, they're not. They've gone within, and they're not. Um, they're totally withdrawn, and they're not interacting with other people, and they're not interested in what's going on. On this continuum, there comes a point one to three weeks before death arrives where a person begins what I call labor. We go through labor to get into this world. We go through labor to leave it. And the labor to leave this world is harder on us, the watchers. Than it is on the person that's dying because they're so withdrawn and removed from their body that they're not experiencing anything in this, in the what we consider a normal way. So when labor begins, that's one to three weeks before death occurs, a person is sleeping almost all the time. They're sleeping with their eyes partially open. Kind of at half mast, they're picking at the air or their bedclothes. They're restless and agitated. Um, They may be puffing, and and you just see their kind of their lips coming together and blowing a little bit. Or they'll do what I call start and stop breathing, where you look at them and you think, "Oh my gosh, he just died. He's not breathing." And then he starts breathing again. Start and stop breathing. What you're going to remember when labor begins is that nothing in the physical body works right. It's all shutting down. So you can have a fever, and fever goes with dying. You're not going to do a bunch of lab work to see why a person has a fever. If they're in the dying process, you're going to get them some Tylenol and cool claws. Um, you're just... The body is shutting down then um, part of their body can be hot another part can be cold you're just going to remember nothing works right then there are changes that occur in the hours to minutes well let's do days days to hours and that key change is called modeling and it's a bluish purple to the hands and the feet and the legs. And it's the body shutting down. It's not, the circulation isn't normal anymore. And then days to hours, uh, or hours to minutes, excuse me, hours to minutes, a person is generally non responsive. That means their eyes are partially open. Um, they can be talking, but they're not making any sense. But they don't respond to this world. And uh, you call their name, they don't respond. You touch them, they don't respond. And then um, they start breathing like a little fish breathes. Just picture a, a fish and how it breathes in the water, how its mouth open and closes. Well, that's how they're breathing in the Hours to minutes before a person dies. I Think it's important to know that a person can hear you in the moments before death And so you talk to that person even though they're not responding Even though it appears they don't hear you you talk to them tell them what's in your heart Say your goodbyes um, This is, a, is a, an opportunity Um to love them as they go from this change, from this world to the next. And then their breathing gets slower and slower and slower till they're taking maybe five or six breaths a minute. And then they stop breathing and then they're gone and after they stop breathing, they may take one or two or three long, long, spaced-out breaths where you think they're not going to take one, and they do, and that's kind of scary. Um, but that's, that's how we die. And even a fast death will do the, the hours to minutes um, that, that I've just talked about. And if you know what to expect, then you know that mom's doing a good job. You know that she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, that nothing bad is happening. It's very, very sad when someone we care about dies. But it, it doesn't have to be bad. There is a normal way that people die, and it's not bad, and it's not scary if you know what to expect
2: right that was really fascinating and actually I, 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 I did not know that like i did not know that's how it went down um but also what surprised me too i didn't know this and i actually i had a we were talking to a friend while i was reading your book her father passed away from cancer and she went through the in details and like it, it literally it followed everything that you said and one thing she's mentioned too and you wrote about in your book is that you know talking about how your body is in is failing uh there's issues of incontinence and you know you're going to be going to the bathroom in the bed. And you have no control over it. And it's like really messy. And my friend's like, she was changing sheets quite a bit for her father. And I did not know that that happened.
0: Yep. I, and I should have mentioned that in the weeks before death and for sure in the days to hours before death, a person's going to be peeing and pooping the bed because they're releasing everything in their body. It's just letting go. You know, they're not in control of their body anymore. And there's also a point of confusion. And we get really upset when, when they start in the weeks before death, they start talking and they're not making any sense. And they're talking about hearing people and things that we don't see. And we get real conf- scared. Um, and so what I what that confusion is, is think about, they're sleeping more than they're awake. And so their world is not this world anymore. They're talking about their dream world. And so what's hap- what they're talking about is making sense to them but not to us. And if they're not a danger to themselves falling out of bed or hurting themselves, you don't have to give a lot of medications. You know, listen to them. You you know, they're telling you what their world is like Um, and this is perfectly normal. If someone gets very, very agitated and and you think they're going to hurt themselves, um, then, of course, you're going to get some doll or Ativan or something to calm them down. But generally, that confusion, and, you know, people will say, oh, they're hallucinating and they're delirious. They're telling you what their world is like. Um, we don't have to be afraid of that.
2: Um, another thing that you mentioned, I think, that confuses some people. It happens in some people who are dying. I've heard it uh two family friends who had died. This happened to them, but like the day before they actually died, they had like this sudden burst of energy.
0: Oh, yes. I call it the calm before the storm. And it's, it doesn't always happen, but it happens enough that we hear these stories where, you know, dad's been in bed for a month and he's been sleeping all the time and not eating at all. And he wakes up and he says, I want a steak dinner. And I want to bake potato with my steak and call the kids and get them all over, and we're going to the dining room table. And he does. And he visits, and he eats his food, and what we think is the miracle has happened. He's going to be better. All of our prayers have answered, you know, this is fantastic. And 48 hours later he's dead and you think what happened here now this is purely me it is not medical this is just what what Barbara Carnes came up with um, is I think that nothing operates in a void and as our physical energy starts with drawing from our body that since there's no void, a spiritual energy starts filling in that space to help us get from this world to the next. And some of that energy lops over into the physical, and we have this wonderful little gift of interaction. But we're so... Startled by it, and so caught up in our own expectations that we off that we miss the gift. You know, we're in the forest and we don't see the trees, and it isn't till the visitation that we then start saying, "What in the world happened?" I think it's just a little gift that some of us get.
2: Interesting. Um, so you write, you said this uh, several times in your book that people die like they live. What, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, there are dynamics to dying, and um, one of them is we die the way we've lived. Dying is just really one more experience in life. You know, it's it's one more challenge that all of us are going To experience, and we are going to deal with that challenge in the same way that we've dealt with any other challenge in our life. So, if I have run away from my challenges in living, then I'll be in denial about my approaching death. If I've been organized and very much of a doer, then I'll have my DNR in place and I may even write my own obituary. Dying doesn't change our personality. It intensifies it. So if I'm ornery and cantankerous in living, then I'm going to be an absolute monster in dying because it's not going to change who I am. We don't suddenly go from being ornery to being a saint. It just intensifies our personality. And so, you know... We use the word dying all the time, and if you think about it, that's a misnomer, because life is a terminal illness. From the moment of bo- uh, that we're born, we begin to die. Cells in our body die every day. It's all a part of living. And so, really, the time that I talk about the dying process, it's really
3: When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30 day money back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was how can I take care of my family? When I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance. One of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com manliness. That's meetfabric.com manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss.
2: I thought that was, there was no deathbed conversions. No. really Yeah. No. All right. So get it, get it, go, get it, get it right now. Right.
0: Yeah. You better do it while, while you're very alert and very grounded because as you're as you're dying, there isn't going to be time to say, "Oh, I've changed my mind."
2: So, I think because we're so unfamiliar with death, and we like as a society, uh, we don't know how to act around people who are dying, right? And you, a friend, gets that uh, diagnosis of, of cancer, and they only have six months, um, and you just don't know what to do. Like, what? Like, do do you talk about it? Like, do you avoid talking about it because you don't want them to like feel uncomfortable? So, how should we? approach individuals that we know who are dying, how do we how do we approach them and talk to them and interact with them?
0: I think it depends upon the closeness of your relationship with them. You know, if they're a neighbor and you only see them when uh, they're out walking and you wave and say, hi, you're not going to suddenly show up on their doorstep and say, I hear that you've got a life-threatening illness, talk to me. But if it is a close friend that has been given a, a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness, of course you're going to want to support and be there with them. I think that you look to first to the, the depth of your relationship with the person. That's going to determine the depth of the conversation that you'll have with them. The other thing is, um, you want to see what they're comfortable with. I I had a uh, I just wrote an article uh, for the blog about a person who has a life-threatening illness, and he, she said. Um, I I am so tired of people asking me how I am and what I'm doing and telling me that I look good. She said, I know I don't look good. Um, I don't want, what can I say to people um, who who talk to me and I don't want to talk to them? And I said, you can say to them, You know, I'm fine. The journey's been a rough one, and I don't want to talk about it. You know, be honest. Be open. Um, So my key there is to be yourself. And if you have a relationship that's close enough with a person that you talk about stuff, then talk about this because you may be the only one that has approached this person um, to say, let's talk about it.
2: So what about if you are the person, right? You go to the doctor and the doctor says, look, you're you're dying, you need to get your fares in order. How do you I'm sure there's there might be people who are listening to this right now that that might be them, and it might happen to one some of us at some point we don't know. Um, how do you how do you respond psychologically to that? I mean, how do you come to terms with your pending death?
0: Very interesting because I'm not sure we do. Um, Number one is in the months before death, when we've been told by a physician that we can't be fixed, I don't think we believe it. I don't think we can comprehend our own death. You know, I don't think we can see that in the months before death. It's like there'll be a cure The doctors are wrong, there'll be a miracle, Um, we can't really see ourselves as being dead, even though we can talk about it. But in our core, we don't really believe it. Um, Then as this progression, as we get closer to dying um, and we get to weeks before death, then that knowledge, that intellectual knowledge that we haven't really grasped um, becomes real. And we know, indeed, we are dying. We may not share it with anyone, but in in our very core, we'll go, yeah, they were right. I'm going to die. And what we also have at that time is we're so disconnected from this world you know we've spent these months withdrawing sleeping more eating less and so we're going within but we're not our our mind is more within and it's not thinking like we normally think if that makes any sense yeah. at all it's it's really hard to describe it, but we, in, when labor begins the one to three weeks before death, we really don't care. We just don't care because we're just so withdrawn that um, our emotions are different. And so that fear that we all are going to have, every single one of us, are going to be afraid as we approach death because it's the unknown. We haven't done it before. We're always afraid when we do something new. And so that fear can be manifested in restlessness. It can be in agitation. Um, When I see someone really, really, really in labor and agitated, I put that on fear, can be lack of oxygen, but more than likely it's fear. And I'm going to do relaxation techniques. Um, They aren't at a point where I can sit down and have a conversation with them, but I can still talk to them because they can hear me and I will try and help them relax and be more at ease.
2: So I mean, it seems like uh, when you talk about hospice care, now I mean, is that what hospice care is all about? Because I think when people hear hospice, the, the, the typical image they have is like, well, it's sort of like uh, they come to your home or you go to a special, a nice little place where they just help you, you know, care for the dying. But what exactly is involved in hospice care? And I, I'm not just hot, good hospice care, because I think you talk about that in your book. You make a distinction between hospice care and good hospice care.
0: Right. It's re- hospice is changing a lot. and so it's it's getting more and more difficult to find a good, and I put that in quotes, hospice. Um, you you want for hospice, you want some, you want a hospice that has the same nurse coming every time. because you want to trust and develop a bond with that nurse because that nurse is going to guide you through this experience. And I think the key role for hospice is education, is to educate the family and those significant people that are going to be involved with that dying time, that process, that they understand it so that they can put their fears aside. It is hard work. It's 24-7 taking care of someone dying at home. It isn't easy, but it is a gift. It is an opportunity to have a closeness um, that it's even hard to have words to describe how great you will feel after you've done it, uh, but it's scary to think about. Yeah, I'm bringing mom home, and she's going to die here in bed. And how am I going to take care of her? Well, hospice will bring in um, nurses, aides who will give her a bath and change the bed. They will. They have chaplains to give you spiritual guidance if you want it. Um, they have social workers who can help you connect with community services and just give you the, the emotional and, and support uh, through this experience. They have volunteers that will come in and, and help stay with you. So stay with mom so you can go to the grocery store, you know, just to, to um, have a little respite time. Um, All of this is what hospice can give. The, The really sad thing that I'm seeing today is that hospice referrals come when a person looks like they're dying because we think hospice takes care of people who are dying. Well... When a person looks like they 're dying is when labor begins before that time in the months before death, they look frail, they look sick, but they don 't look like they 're dying. Well, so we wait till they till labor begins, and then hospice comes in they can 't really do anything for the patient other than teach mouth care and positioning because the person who's dying is so removed from their physical body that you know, you're know you just gonna do physical care for them. And the family is in crisis because no one has said to the family, mom's dying now, we're talking a matter of days or a week or so. So they're in crisis. If you get hospice when the dying process begins, months before death, then the hospice people can work with the patient and help them live the best they can within the confines that their body and disease has put them in. And they have time to educate and support the family. The key to hospice that they don't always have time to do is to teach to teach the dying process, to teach how to care for the person. They're the support, but it's all about education.
2: So I'm curious for our, our listeners who are listening, they might have parents who are, you know, in their 80s and 90s, and maybe they're healthy and going active, they're strong right now, but how do they know at which point they should bring in hospice because their their parent is dying of old age?
0: Okay. Old age is is a is a different ball game okay. in that old age a person will have the same signs of approaching death the not eating, the sleeping more, the withdrawing, but those signs occur over years mm. instead of over months, where gradual death from disease occurs over months. So there's a bigger timeline. When you get to the point where labor begins, where the person who's just old is um, sleeping all the time, is not eating, is totally withdrawn, that's the time you're going to think, okay, now let's call hospice and see let's talk to the physician and see if the physician will refer us to hospice because you have to have a physician referral to be on the hospice program
2: okay and if it's disease like it's just when do you like as soon as you get the the diagnosis or should you wait a little bit when should you decide to bring in hospice if,
0: if the doctor has sat down with you and has said look there's nothing we can do um, we don't recommend any chemotherapy or radiation. Um, we can't fix you. Um, then I think that that's a very, very appropriate time. Of course, you've got to, I, I, I need to know what the disease is. Sure. Um, but for a lot of, of cancers, um, remind me to talk about dementia, but like COPD is unpredictable. So that's harder to know when to, to bring on hospice. Congestive heart failure, if, you're, if you decided you're not taking all the meds that, that they have, then that would be the time to call hospice. And the cancers, if you're not having uh, chemotherapy, that depending upon what kind of cancer may be the time. So you have to go through your doctor, um, and that that's a whole other issue, too, because doctors are often hesitant to, to recommend hospice. They'd rather do the treatments. They want to fix. Yeah. Right. That's what they're taught to do. And they're, um, my philosophy is just because you can do something medically doesn't mean that it's appropriate to do it.
2: Right, because you might be able to extend someone's life by a month or two, but in the process it could probably do more damage or just make you really uncomfortable or make everyone's life uncomfortable, right?
0: Right, your, your quality of life for living that extra month or two, um, is it worth it? Is, if, if you had known, would you have traded the pain and the sickness um, and the debilitation uh, for another month? Some people would say, yes, I would. I don't care. Others would say, no, you know, I really would have rather been able to um, interact with my family more, to not be so sick and debilitated, to have taken this gift. And that's what a, a gradual death is a gift. It's a gift of time. A lot of us throw that gift away, um, and when we've been told we can't be fixed, we basically stop living, but it's a gift, an opportunity to do and say that which we want to do and say. Um, So that's another thing hospice tries to help people see that they've been given a gift, and how can we help you utilize this gift in the very best way?
2: So you talk about this, you hit on this a little bit in your book, um, and it actually is very timely. Uh, It's the issue of advanced directives and living wills. And it's very curious to talk to someone who's seen people, what it's like to be in the last stages of life. You have a terminal condition and and you know, there's putting feeding tubes in you and hydration tubes. You know, my wife and I are trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? Like I'm unconscious, but I'm terminal. There's nothing the doctors can do. Do I want a feeding tube? Do I want hydration? So, I'm curious. I mean, from your experience of decades of working with people and watching people who have gone through the dying process, right, and have been sustained maybe beyond you know the natural course of life because they've had treatment or hydration or feeding tubes, is it is it worth it or should we just let nature take its course? This is my like, I I, don't, I have no idea. Like, because I've never seen that process, so I have no idea what decision I should make.
0: I think it depends upon the person's personality. Um, you know, my my father-in-law, my my stepfather said, I want absolutely everything done. I want everything, you know, and if I'm on a ventilator, you know, I want to be brain dead for three days before you disconnect the, the ventilator. You know, some people want to do absolutely everything, but there are other people that will say, you know, look. Uh, if you can't fix me, then I, I want to be able to to leave with dignity, and um, I want to be able to live um, as as best I can, as long as I can. But living is is the operative word here. I want some quality. I don't want to just breathe. And we have the medical capabilities to keep a physical body breathing um, for a long time after actual life and the interaction and enjoyment of life is gone. So you have to ask yourself, what do I want? And then if you decide, you know, I don't want to just be hooked up to a machine and that's all just my body breathing then the natural way we die is not eating and that includes not drinking. And so you wouldn't want a feeding tube um, or IVs for fluid because you would be going against the natural way that a body dies and you would just be prolonging. Now, again, you have to look at... Um, the disease you know uh, and how fixable it is if I can have an active life by having a feeding tube and I'm not in the dying process but whatever my disease is that I can't put food in my stomach but I can still walk around and I can interact, then yeah, I'm going to have the feeding tube. But if the doctors can't fix me and I'm in the dying process, then no, I'm not going to have a feeding tube because that's just going to prolong um, my leaving this world and and my dying. You, you with me? Yeah,
2: I'm with you. And...
0: and- Let me say about fluids, because this is so important, Um, and that is the normal way that we die is being dehydrated. When we die, when we're dehydrated, the electrolytes in our bloodstream get out of whack, and our calcium goes up, and we close our eyes, we go to sleep, and we don't wake up. That's how we die. And that's part of the reason we stop eating and we stop drinking. Um, so that we get to that place where we close our eyes and we go to sleep and we don't wake up. We interfere with that normal process and that easy, gentle way to die when we start doing IV fluids.
2: So it's not uncomfortable. That's the thing I was worried about. I was like, man, is this going to be uncomfortable if they It's not. Okay.
0: It, dehydration dehydration if i'm healthy and well yeah that's uncomfortable but if i am in labor in the labor of dying one to 3 weeks before death dehydration is not uncomfortable always 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 offer food and water you always offer it right up to the last breath. Offer, never deny. Offer, but don't force. Don't so, force.
2: So, Barbara, I'm curious. This has been a really just fascinating conversation. Um, you know, I'm 33, and I don't, I don't have any signs of a terminal illness. Um, I hope living, you know, another 60, 60 odd years, hopefully, but is there a way for me and other young people who are listening to this, like to start preparing for death right now, or is it something you just have to deal with once it comes? Right.
0: Great, great question. The first thing that everyone should do is have, um, a durable medical power of attorney assigned to someone. You should have your, your advanced directives filled out so that, If there is an accident, um, you can die, be allowed to die the way you want to be, want to. If you don't have an advanced directive, then you're going to die the way the medical profession wants you to. But if you have opinions, you don't want to be on a respirator for seven years, um, then you've got to have an advanced directive and a durable medical power of attorney. That's a a must. And then the second thing you do to prepare for your death is you live your life the very best you can. You recognize how precious being alive is and enjoy the moments. Enjoy living. And we get so caught up in our durable wheel of routine that we forget to really, the old cliche, smell the roses, you know. Um, I think that's the best preparation for, for dying that there is, is to live and enjoy the life that you have.
2: Well, Barbara, on that note, we're going to end this. Thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. Where can people learn more about your work?
0: You can go to my website, which is www.gonefrommysite.com. You can read my books. You can ask me questions. You know, go to the website. If you have questions, uh, go to the blog section and ask me questions, and I'll I'll write about it. And if you give me an email address, I'll give you a personal response um, and answer your question personally as well.
2: Barbara Carnes, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
0: Oh, thanks, Brad.
2: My guest today was Barbara Carnes. She is a hospice nurse as well as the author of several works on the dying process. She mentioned Gone From My Sight. It's a really great little book. You can find that on Amazon.com. You can find more information about her work at BarbaraCarnes.com. Really go check it out. Even if you don't think you're dying or you know someone who's going to be dying anytime soon, really read this stuff because it really will enlighten you about the dying process. It was a completely eye-opening experience for me to learn this information. And I'm actually feeling... Not completely comfortable with death, but I'm not feeling as uncomfortable about it as before. So again, barbarkarnes.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and you've gotten something out of it, I would really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help us get the word out about the show. And as always, I appreciate your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.